0: What is resilience? How can we develop resilience in ourselves? Are we born with resilience or is it innate? Do we learn it or is it a little bit of both?
1: Hello and welcome to TripCast360, the podcast of the lively banter about travel, tourism and entertainment. This is Michael Gordon Bennett coming to you from Las Vegas, and I am joined by the Barbados Flash via the Big Apple, Dave Cumberbatch. Dave, uh, I have been wanting to talk to our guest today for years. Um, I uh, have admired him from afar, and it's not just because we're both vets. Um, I, I'm a straight shooter, and so is he. So I am really looking forward to this conversation.
0: I am as well, and today's show we'll be discussing the role of resiliency in the face of COVID nineteen. There is no better person to share his experience than our guest today.
1: I, I promised our guests uh, I wouldn't curse, but I'm going to say this: some damn common sense would go a long way towards solving a lot of our problems right now. Um, before I introduce our guest, let me do what I do at the beginning at every show. You can catch our podcast on our website at tripcast360.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We're on all the platforms, iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, please share with your friends, subscribe, like. And if you're on iTunes in particular, uh, they have a rating system, one to five stars. Man, don't waste your time with the one star. Just give us the five star, get it over with, and let's move on with life.
0: That's right. And you can also follow us on social media as well, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Twitter, and soon we'll be on YouTube. And don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter on our website, TripCast360.com.
1: All right. Now let's let's get on with today's show because uh, this, this man's time is valuable and I certainly don't want to waste oh, it. Oh, yes. Our guest today is Lieutenant General Russell Honore. Many of you remember him as Commander of Joint Task Force Katrina, where he received wide acclaim for his stellar handling of recovery efforts throughout the Gulf region and in particular, the city of New Orleans. General Honore has held numerous commands across Europe, Asia, Africa, and South America over his 37-year Army career, many having to do with disaster preparedness and response. We wanted to have him on our show to discuss a wide range of topics, from America's crumbling infrastructure to COVID-19 and the effects of climate change. His home state of Louisiana has been hit by two hurricanes in the same region within six weeks, and as we're recording this podcast, Hurricane Zeta is bearing down on the Louisiana-Mississippi Gulf Coast. You might be asking yourself what any of this has to do with travel and tourism. We think it will become abundantly clear as you listen to this podcast. General Honore, man, it is a pleasure to meet you virtually, and uh, thanks for uh, coming on TripCast360. Well, it's
2: good to be here with you, and I wish everyone's was doing well, being safe, wearing your mask. Keep
1: your distance, stay home. <laughs> <laughs> Go vote. Yes. i uh, done that already. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll
0: tell you, General, as you well know, crises and disasters are major challenges for the tourism industry, uh, which can ac- incur significant economic and job losses as a result of reduction in, tur- in tourism demand. Um, the importance of resilience with destinations facing crises and disasters is It's certainly indisputable, yet little is known about how governments uh, become resilient. Michael just mentioned in the opening about the fires in California. Um, There's certainly an impact on climate change. Michael mentioned about the two hurricanes that are actually bearing down on Louisiana and Mississippi in the Gulf Coast. Where did we fall short uh, or are we falling short at the moment?
2: Well, that's a good question, because uh, if you have a certain mindset, uh, there's an approach to the fires and the hurricanes. We've always had them, which is true. You can go throughout history. We've all had catastrophic events. Uh, Along the Gulf Coast, uh, it's been hurricanes and floods coming down the Mississippi River. Uh, out on the West coast has been uh, volcanoes and fires. And there's an appreciation, uh, a conclusive, substantiated uh, evidence from science that says, while well, we've always had them, the frequency of them is larger. Climate change. Uh, because of the rising sea levels, the uh, change uh, in the temperature of the earth, which affects the temperature of the water in the Gulf, the uh, melting solar cap, all those contributed, are contributed to uh, pollution, which creates climate change. That climate change is induced by man. And there's a recognition that we do have weather patterns. But what we have seen in the last two decades uh is has scientific conclusions that, that's humani- unanimous in most cases that what we have done and what we uh as far as inducing this through uh, polluting our air uh the release of carbon and methane and butane into the air is is having a a present day Impact on the power of the storms, the frequency of the storms, the uh, droughts that we are seeing, and even the wind patterns are changing. So, you know, up in the Midwest, we had a terrible ton, uh, thunderstorm go through there that had destroyed, you know, hundreds of thousands of acres of agriculture. Something I was up there a few years ago talking to them about weather patterns. What we talked about were blizzards because that was the hardest thing they faced up there in some flooding. <laughs> and I almost had to work my way away from hurricanes. And, uh, but here we go this year and this big uh, weather event. So on the other hand, if our forefathers looked at where we have built today, I think the approach would be If you build near the water, you need to expect the flood. Oh, yeah. If you build a house in the forest, the forest is going to burn. If the forest don't burn, then the forest itself becomes a not healthy forest. Right. If you understand what I'm saying. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about the fires because I wrote about that in – my first book called Survival, How You uh, Create a Culture of Preparedness, that the great state of California and Oregon and Washington and Colorado are blessed with great expanse of land that much of it is just forest areas, Uh, high deserts that get enough rain to grow these great trees and shrub brushes. And as we put the subdivisions and housing inside these, what were natural forests, if somebody go out with a campfire and start a fire, we go put the fire out. Or if lightning come, we go put the fire out. With lightning being natural, all other fires out there are man-made. So the only wildfires really are those that are caused by lightning. The rest of them, we should call them not wild, but man-made fires. Right. Because they're induced by man. It's like these people went out and did an announcement party for the kid. New baby they were going to have and set one of the biggest fires we've had out in California. I mean, how damn stupid is that?
1: And it's, I mean, and it's been happening for, I, I moved to California in 1987, and they actually used to run around, the fire department used to run around Uh, during the Santa Ana wind conditions, which is typically now in October. And these people were deliberately starting fires. Now it's become more of the power lines are falling down and they're lighting the ground on fire. But back then, people were deliberately setting fires. And I'm like, I'm just scratching my head. Like, what the hell were you thinking?
2: Right. But so with the fires, we've got more people moved to the forest. Uh, and you'll notice a lot of them. There are no uh, fire departments per se. There, there's no fire hydrant in the front of the home, and they got what they wanted. They wanted to go off the grid, or they wanted to go in these small, quaint little towns in the mountain. Like I won't name them because one of the things you won't want to do when we give an assessment. Is beat down on the survivors. This is not beaten down on the survivors. Right. It's something culturally we have done that don't make any damn sense. You with me?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Because again, if you move in the forest, you've got to expect and then when you move in the forest, you have to take precautions. You can't have trees within 150 feet or trees that are tall enough when they catch fire, they can fall on your house. You got to have a cleared area. Yeah. You can't have uh, composite roofs. You got to have slate or metal roofs. You can't have a bunch of uh, pine straw uh, shrub beds around your house. Unfortunately, that part of... Uh, man-induced risk that we have taken, the word resilient is a good word because if we were a resilient culture and we're going to live in the forest, then we would have standard. We wouldn't have uh, uh, composite roofs. We wouldn't have those type of wood roofs. Some of you just have wood roofs.
1: Yeah. California is you know? fa- famous for those.
2: Yeah, we, w- we would have... Either tin, metal, or some kind of a slate that won't catch fire. And
0: and I'm glad that you said that, not to interrupt you, but um I'm glad that you said that, because several years ago I was in California. I actually actually I was in Laguna Beach, and I see a number of homes that were literally hanging off hills, hanging off mountains. Um you get areas like your area where you're at right now, where you're b- below sea level. Uh, are you suggesting that people shouldn't, in the first instance, build homes that are hanging off hills and mountains, knowing that California is earthquake uh, prone, or in terms of the ninth ward, living below, c- b- below sea level?
2: Well, I was—I'm coming to that. You know, okay. I'm, I'm trying to get through the fires right now. <laughs> okay, <laughs> to we could probably spend more time uh, when we looked at the impact of, of water, because water actually destroys more homes than anything else. Okay, globally. So, but let's get done with the fires. I think if we're going to build in the forest, then we have to have some sense of being resilient when we bounce back that we take the proper measures in terms of uh, how we construct those homes. Uh, and then they have to be controlled burns. So that fuel that's in those nearby forests don't get built up over so many years that when they do catch fire, they're actually burning the tree. Cause in a controlled burn, when professionals do it, the big trees don't burn, you know, it's just burning the, fuel that's on the ground the debris that's on the ground the leaves and, and it becomes a healthy thing for the forest. And matter of fact, some of the trees they do not repopulate unless there's a fire that uh, opened the cones up. I don't want to sound like I'm an expert on that, but I know enough about it to say we have to do better in forest management. And we have to have a sense of uh, resilience that if we're going to build in the forest, That, you know, we don't do like, what's that uh, novel story? Did you build your house out of straw? I mean, you know, (laughs) uh, we we have to be resilient. Uh, Coming to the point, and if we use the Gulf Coast as an example, in 2005 when Katrina hit, we had 20% of our population were living near water. I think that's going up to about 25%. Of the population in the United States now live near water. That's our infatuation with water. (laughs) And when you look at most of the cities uh, in the United States, most of them were formed around some source of water. You know, you got Chicago, you got New Orleans, you got Cleveland, you got Washington, D.C., uh, Miami, uh, Jacksonville, New York, because water uh, wasn't just for drinking, but it was a source of industrial power and transportation. Mm-hmm. So most of our great cities or bigger cities, I won't use the word great too much, uh, were around sources of water. It means when you near a source of water, it's like when I bought this house I'm setting in, uh, uh, in 2009, we were with the uh, realtor and we were doing some paperwork at the house. And I said, what about flood insurance? He said, you don't need that here. <laughs> I said, oh, boy, oh, shit. We got to have
0: one
2: in Louisiana. <laughs> he said, General, nobody around here. I'm selling houses. You know I, have- I said, come here. I said, what is that over there? What I said that green thing? What is
1: that? <laughs> well, that's the levee.
2: <laughs> I said, look, if you can see a damn levee, you're levee. <laughs>
1: <predator."> it's right.
2: <laughs> it's like, where is uh, where is the planning and zoning board? You know that don't dictate that we're gonna allow you to build this slum division here. But you got to understand, it's a flood zone that you're moving in. And when we look at the number of people, I I saw a number on uh, Weather Channel not long ago, the number of millions of people that have moved near water in the last 10 years is unbelievable. Uh, So the realization is, and the joke I often tell to my audiences when I'm out speaking, if you can walk out on your back, deck or front porch and see water, mm-hmm. you're behind can flood. <laughs> <laughs> if you cross water on the way home, <laughs> you can flood. You're behind the flood. <laughs> you with me? Yes. Yes. So to use a little adult language that we, we, we've sort of put in perspective. Oh my Lord, the hurricane's coming. Yep, yeah, hurricane's coming. And a uh, most vulnerable cities like uh, New Orleans, a port city uh, that from its inception was built on a piece of high ground next to the river and they continued to build. The city continued to build out by the airport because an engineer at Tulane created a uh, screw pump is the word they use that could pump, out water out of the marsh and the city continued to grow into the marsh. Most of that was wetlands Mm -hmm. between the uh, city and, uh, the airport in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. When when you land there, it looks all normal, but this has happened over the last couple hundred years. Technology gave them the ability to drain the swamp. It did. And we continued to build, uh, That being said, not much is going to change with the situation in New Orleans other than it will become more vulnerable because we have lost much of our wetlands uh, due to subsidence and erosion. The erosion was exacerbated. And the reason the wetlands are important south of New Orleans is because when the hurricane come in and it hit landfall, it loses its energy. Well, with those wetlands being destroyed over time because of saltwater intrusion, and again, acts of man, uh, uh, when they were doing oil exploration in there 70 years ago, the oil companies came in and they built what they call exploration canals. So they could barges in, go set up uh, wells. The agreement, on the permit was that when they were done, they were gonna close those exploration canals. They didn't close them. So imagine this pristine wetlands now with all these canals going in different directions, allowing saltwater intrusion, which uh, broke the integrity of the wetlands. And some attribute the wetlands loss to when we put the levees in that in the spring floods we didn't get the water rushing out into the wetlands the way it was uh, prior to 300 years ago when, when the place was settled. That being said, uh, it's, it's a two-edged ed- sword. There are things that have always naturally happened, floods, rain, hurricanes, and natural fires. Taking both scenarios. What has changed? in the last 300 years, is that we have elected to do what? To go live in those places. When you saw Hurricane Sally hit a few weeks ago, or right near mobile off the Florida coast, uh, there were million dollar summer homes there, right on the water, uh, where they could walk out of the patio of the summer home and go right in their boat And go out in the ocean. When you build that way, you can expect a flood. When you go to Tampa, Florida, and you go to the municipal hospital in downtown Tampa, at high tides, you can go out and and touch the water in the bay. It's a matter of time. That hospital's going to flood. Yep. Mm -hmm. Uh, You go the same thing in Miami. And up toward uh, Miami Beach up toward Lauderdale and into Mar-a-Lago areas and, and Lauderdale up there, that place is going to flood. Yep. Mm-hmm. The elevation is nine feet. <sighs> Katrina came into New Orleans at 18 feet and in Biloxi with a surge at 28 feet. Mississippi. It's a function of time that's going to happen. They exacerbated the situation by putting canals in to subdivisions and mega homes in and around Miami. If you've flown in there or you have ridden around, you've seen them. Yeah. And the big yachts are parked right outside uh, in front of these super mansions. And then you've got Lauderdale, you've got a whole uh, a section of the coast there with these canals that come in so people can walk out and get in their boat. All of them have their own bulkhead, walk out and get in their boat. All that's gonna flood if you ever get a tidal surge over nine feet, because that's that's the highest you can claim between Lauderdale and Miami as far as as elevation. Right. And we can go to Hurricane Doria. You know, we talked about when I met you guys out in the uh Bahamas. Uh those were sparsely populated Northern Islands for years. People would go on them, they'd fish in hurricane season, they would keep an eye out and they would. <laughs> and get back to the main island. Uh, people went out there and started living. Those used to be <laughs> fishing camps. You know what I mean? Yeah. And created villages because we went. What maybe hundred years without a bad storm coming through there? And look what happened. It's inevitable. So, I think if you're going to live there along the coast, you must take into consideration that it's going to flood, and you must have you know elevation as best you can. On the other hand, I say that when we look at Cameron Parish, where Hurricane Laura, then followed by Hurricane Delta, hit over the last seven weeks, six weeks later, and you look at Cameron Parish, Cameron Parish, Louisiana, was destroyed during Hurricane Rita, which came just a few weeks after Katrina 15 years ago. And much of Cameron Parish was destroyed. It was uh, again flooded during Hurricane Ike. Yeah. Well, they had to rebuild much of the buildings. Now it's been destroyed again by Hurricane Laura. And now they've had Hurricane Delta come through. There there come a point in time where we're going to have to make some decisions. I know of some buildings that have been built three times in 15
1: years. At, at At what point does this build and rebuild and build and rebuild become untenable?
2: When the government
1: stopped giving people money to do it? No. true. I mean, every place that you've mentioned, I lived in California. I lived on the Gulf Coast for 10 years. I was stationed in, in uh, my dad was stationed in Panama City. And then when I went on active duty, I too was stationed in Panama City. We left for so many hurricanes, I can't count. Uh, and I always remember they were building hotel properties on the highway side, meaning that they were building them on the Gulf like 30 feet from the water. Right. Hurricane comes in, wipes them out. They rebuild a damn hotel. Then somebody in Panama City finally got smart. So let's build them on the other side of Highway 98. Right. Well, guess what? The the more intense storms got to the other side of Highway 98 as well. I mean, you know, Hurricane Michael that hit Panama City about this time two years ago wiped out Tindall Air Force Base. And Tindall sat right on the water and it had no elevation above sea level. Right. And so I, I keep looking at this, and it's like, we're never, we're always reacting to something instead of being proactive when the scientists are sitting there staring us in the damn face. That's well, again, we go down. back
2: to uh, our national strategy on how we're going to deal with our infrastructure, taking into account the natural disaster patterns. Uh, we've taken the word climate change and so politicized it that you know you're almost determine a of the person political affiliation. You know, you say uh, climate change, they roll their eyes and they end the conversation, or oh, they want to stay and fight with you. Right. That it doesn't exist, it's all natural this weather pattern. But we know conclusively that it's not. That being said, uh to kind of There are things that we know, there are things that history has shown. And I tell folks when you go, let's say you go and buy a house in the South or anywhere in the Midwest, anywhere you go, uh, check the elevation of the house. Here's a simple rule because you can do it with an iPhone. You know, you can either ask Siri what your elevation is or go to an app. Go to the front step of the house. Write that down. Then go to the nearest state road. Uh, check the elevation of that. Look, boat ways. get the elevation. Then go to the nearest railroad. Check the elevation. If there's a levee nearby, go to the base of that levee, check the elevation. If any of those elevations are higher than your house, your ass is going to flood. <laughs> 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 that's where the levy break that the water's coming. <laughs> the railroad, if it rains, the railroad will block the water from leaving and you will flood from raining. Yep. The state highways built over time as they rebuild them to raise them each time so they take them a little higher out of the last flood. You with me? Yep. And you're going to flood. So, uh, uh, that's the advice I give folks who are going out to buy house. Check your elevation. If, if you can look up and see mountains all around, where do you think that water that mountain is going?
1: Running straight downhill to your damn house. <laughs> right.
2: So we, we've got to be a little better at it. But, you know, folks will say, well, we bought a new subdivision, Gerald. You know, this was approved by the planning and zoning board. Hell, the is zoning board will approve a ham sandwich.
1: <laughs> as long as it pays them.
2: They want that tax. That's right. They want the kickback from the developer. <laughs> They're volunteers. They don't <laughs> work for money. Yep. They work for yacht, You know what I mean? Yep. So <laughs> you can't trust the system. You have to do your own homework and you have to take into consideration of fire, fire floods, earthquakes, uh, and I tell people now, even industrial plants, on where you mm-hmm. decided to live, no, does either one of them uh, uh, increase the risk that you take by living there? There might be beautiful places; you can live there fifty years, and never have a problem.
1: Until that one time, you know. The thing that's really bothering me more than anything else is we understand the floods. I've I've lived in Florida for a lot of years. I saw flooding on a consistent basis. Uh, I lived through the Northridge earthquake in California. I've lived through numerous fires in California and in Colorado where I went to high school. The thing that's striking me now is that the intensity of everything we're sitting here discussing, whether it's hurricanes, fires, natural floods, man-made disasters, the intensity is increasing. And... On some level, we have to address the science behind this. And it's like you said, the political affiliation, you can tell who's who just by whether they believe in science or not. And I'm like, we lost our way somewhere along the damn way because at one point, science is what's enabling us to have this conversation right now. Right. Science is what enables you to get in your car and drive down the street. But somehow or another, when it comes time to dealing with what our eyes are telling us, it's like, don't believe your lying eyes, we we, we're, we just get stupid. You know, to borrow a phrase from your previous book, don't get stuck on stupid. Uh, I mean, it's like, how do we break this cycle?
2: Yeah, I, I don't know. Because, as I said, we've always had powerful storms. The difference is more of us live in the path of them now. You got to understand when you look at this population in the United States, uh, today about 230 million you know, in my lifetime, I can remember when we, you know, when we weren't even 200 million yet, Yeah. you know.
1: Yep. I remember that too. I'm, I, I'm up there too. I'm up there too, General. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so
2: the more people you got inside the danger zone, and many of them are unaware that they just bought a house in the flood zone. We've got to fix that. Right. And we have to fix our infrastructure because much of our infrastructure is aged, most of the dams in America are rated at C or D, wow. meaning they can start breaking at any time. All that infrastructure needs to be rebuilt. We need to redo our canals and our, uh, that takes the water out. And we need to relook at how we're going to reinforce the Mississippi River levee, because the Mississippi River levee, uh, the way it was constructed and when it was constructed, has provided a source of commerce for America. I many people look at Louisiana and say, well, they live down there, they, you know. They don't ought to know better. Well, you know, we ought to know better. But most of the goods that are exported out of the United States are exported through the Mississippi River. It yeah. is the highest export terminal in America. So that's the stuff we send off, we make money off. Not the stuff we import. We will give that to the coast of California as the biggest import terminal, but we are the largest tonnage uh, terminal. 50% of the barges in America are in Louisiana on any given day. Wow. So we're a setup of commerce. You know, we're the reason that when the United States said, hey, we need to capture New
1: Orleans and hold it. Because it's at the mouth, that of, the the river mouth of the river. Yeah, you control that, you control everything.
2: Right, and you can really make that move to the west or to the north, but you have to control the That's why the British came back in 1812 and tried to capture it yep. back because they knew if they could take the river and hold New Orleans, then it would limit our ability as a nation to expand. Uh, that being said, uh, where we sit today, we're living in high-risk areas. Too bad too many don't know. And we continue to move at high numbers in these high-risk areas. And you've got people who are, are going to the islands and they're buying second homes. Many of them are moving to the islands in retirements throughout the Caribbean because they want to get out that Michigan and New York winter. And now they're moving and want to live in the islands. And... There's no reason, there's a, probably a good reason why uh, Nassau is not the size of New York. Because it's not sustainable. Right. It's not sustainable to put in that city of that size in the, in the middle of the ocean. But, as I told the people in the Caribbean country when we went down there, tourism The world needs y'all now because the world needs a place to go rest. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. They need a place where the air is clear. Yeah. Yeah. And the water's clean. Because there's a lot of people around the world, they're not experiencing clean air and clean water now. So, So take that into account as you develop your business model in the Caribbean that the world needs you people need a place to go rest. They need a sanctuary because if you're coming out and, and more and more of the general population are living in mega cities and in and around mega cities, where some of them spend an hour plus just getting to work. And and when they get away, they need to need a place to go or uh, relax. So uh, uh, that's the other side. When you talk about the travel industry, after, uh, Hurricane Katrina, the travel industry in Florida and Louisiana took a major beating that following year. I want to say the millions of people that canceled their August vacations to Florida, people out of Europe and other places that would normally flock down there uh, because you're worried about the hurricanes.
0: (laughs) Uh, How do you explain it is everyone resilient or some people more so than others? And how do the tourism dependent destinations re- remain resilient when they're so dependent on target markets in which they have no control on their ability to be resilient? You know, I,
2: over time, we've become so interdependent on the system. While we talk a lot about trying to get people in the South to be prepared for floods uh, someone wrote a great uh, short story some time ago I read of some tribes in South America that they observed that they knew when the floods were going to come. And prior to the arrival of the floods, they would, they would save food in earthen jars, bulls uh, store them in the sides of hills and high ground, and tie uh, vines to so the city, could find them. I and mean, this, this is—they don't have internet. They don't have solar power. Uh, I think over time we've been bred to be, and if I may use that word that way, we've been culturally conditioned that don't worry about it. The system has got it, you know. right yeah. As opposed to. What do I need to do myself to be resilient? You know, and many would say, well, those people are backward, they don't know what they're doing, but they know how to survive. You with me? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. You know, when you look at the tsunami in Japan, 100 years ago, they put a marker out there. When you look at that tsunami,
1: Mm
2: -hmm. say, hey, don't build beyond this. No, that was that was the description on the market. <laughs> they put a whole city at a port, right? Mm-hmm. What happened when the tsunami came? Bye. I think the market itself was covered in water. So uh, we have taken and continue to take, I think, the wrong kind of risk. And as we go from 7 to 10 billion people, it's going to be more challenging, Michael, as we move into the future because we've got less arable land. We're having more droughts and then we've got a whole segment of the earth that need to catch up. You know there's a half a billion people in Africa without power as we know it. They have to catch up. When, when are we gonna get them caught up? Yeah. Because when they get caught up, they too will become consumers. Yep. They too will become what we hope to be more stable uh, country states and tribes. Because if people don't have food security, there is no national security. Right. We got like 6 million people now uh, out of the area around Syria that are refugees now. What the hell is that all about? You know, we used to read about that happening 40, 50, 60 years ago. Six million people displaced from their home living in refugee camps. What
1: in the hell is that all about? That's not sustainable. I I, I have said this for, gosh, probably all the way back to my college days, 40, 50 years ago. You cannot have this many disinfected, disaffected people on the planet and have society function properly. It it cannot happen. It cannot sustain itself if you have six million refugees here you know, 10 million people running from famine someplace else. Uh, You know, the the collapse of most of the largest empires the world has ever known has been because there are so many people disaffected by what's going on around them.
2: Well, what it certainly does, it creates the environment for chaos uh, as people will challenge the powers that be and then, or tribes... And friction start, then you start off with village conflicts, tribal conflicts, then you get to regional conflicts that end up killing a lot of people. And it comes to food security, water security, because if people are not security, going to move. Now we saw it in the United States and we had the great. Uh, Oklahoma dust bowl, people yep. left. Many of them went settled out in California. I mean, they just left. Yep. Because life out there wasn't sustainable. Yeah. You know, when you go scratch that ground and you scratch that ground, and when the winds come, there's nothing to hold it, mm-hmm. and you end up with a couple of years of drought. Guess what? The wind takes all the soil off of we
1: can't plan a thing. That to
2: change our way of farming. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And when you look at the United States right now. of our aquifers in the Midwest are are less than 50% of their life expectancy. That's what we've done in the last 100 years. Mm -hmm. We're depleting the aquifers.
1: You know, the, the infrastructure that we have in this country, no infrastructure on the planet, but especially here in the United States, it's not meant to last centuries. It lasts 40, 50 years, and you've got to go in and fix it. Right. And due to political nonsense and the reticence of some to spend the money, our infrastructure is crumbling. Uh, and I know we've talked a lot about the infrastructure vis-a-vis natural disasters, but just our normal infrastructure, our bridges. I, I crossed a bridge. General, I, I gave a speech in Louisville, Kentucky in 2011. Yeah. And they took us, uh, they wanted to show us a good time. So they put us on a bus, drove us across the Ohio River into Indiana to a Harris Casino. And I remember I'm sitting in the backseat of the bus looking down at the Ohio River, and I saw chunks of this bridge falling in the water. Wow. And, you know, we sit up here and we – it's like our leaders have not sold the country on the fact that we are falling to pieces. And, you know, some of the reasons that maybe a place like China – is getting what we perceive to be a little uh, uh, ahead of us on the infrastructure battle is because they are more of a newer emerging economy and, they, you know, they, they're a communist country. So, you know, Xi Jinping just say go do it and it's done. We don't operate like that. But on some level, we've got to fix this crumbling infrastructure and it can't be either or. Otherwise, we're not going to be here.
2: Well, And we're going to create jobs when we do it. Exactly.
1: <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, think about how many millions of jobs would we would create just fixing the infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And
2: that that comes to well, where where is the money going? You know, and I come out of the Department of Defense and we do what we're told to do. But over the years, when you go all the way back to Desert Storm, the amount of money we have spent overseas uh, in the Middle East and Afghanistan is just absolutely crazy. Yeah. If we were able to spend that amount of money in Africa, as a continent, uh, or even half of that in our own country, we would make a hell of a difference going after uh, fixing our infrastructure. But every four years, we get a shot at voting on the next promise. Yeah, and, and it hadn't happened, nope. and uh, it didn't happen when we had the uh, uh, forty-four in there. Everybody thought, "Oh man, we're gonna get some infrastructure." Not, not. Nope. Yeah. Didn't happen. Yeah. I had to save the car industries. I had to save the banks. And you know what? None of them went to jail. But we just let a man out of jail in Louisiana last week. He had
1: stolen
2: a pair of clipping shears.
1: Oh, I read that story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was it? 25 years in jail for stealing a pair of hedge clippers. Yeah. Right. He was a three-strike
2: guy. So, <laughs> wow. But all these idiots up here in New York who stole all that money, nobody went to jail. Nope.
1: <laughs> and you know I mean? that, 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 that's BP a crime.
2: You guys, guys can't blow up this well in the Gulf.
1: <laughs> 11
2: people dead. Nobody went to jail. Charged them uh, a few hundred million dollars for fines. And get this, Michael. They get the right to fines off on their taxes. This is a foreign company. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. So, I... <laughs> we left them off the hook. I <laughs> <laughs> was under the great Eric Holder. What the hell were y'all we thinking about, man? Yeah, it... So there's something BS that go on out there that just make you want to scratch your head. Is that, okay, we got to fix this. And uh, no, they walked. Nobody went to jail. Wow! That brother spent 25 years in jail for picking up a pair and taking a pair of head headstrimmers. This guy killed 11 people. The CEO of BP America walked on the beaches of Mississippi, said he wanted his life back, got on a jet and went back to Britain. Nobody held accountable.
0: You mentioned, and um, you mentioned in your book that Americans used to have a culture of preparedness. The fact that you spoke in the past tense suggests that that's no longer the case. When did that change and what caused that change?
2: I think it happened almost in one, uh, maybe two generations. Uh, when I grew up, I was raised on a subsistence farm. And what we did in the summer was get ready for the winter. We, uh, what do you call it, canned food? Yeah. We uh, we had pigs we fattened. Mm. Some of them we sold to get some cash on hand to go back to school. The others we uh, had for meat. Uh, we didn't have freezers in my early years, so we would salt that meat and uh, and secure it, so we'd have meat to last through the winter. That was a natural occurrence where we spent much of the year to make sure that we had food to take us out of the growing season would occur again. That was just a normal way of life. And then I, I tell my uh, friends sometime about, uh, when we looked at a chicken, we looked at the chicken as food. And I tell this story of, of what, after Katrina hit, and I went to my son's school, he went to one of these uh, yuppie schools in Atlanta I said, you know, if the storm came and three chickens came on this schoolyard, these little high school and middle school kids who said, Look, the chicken, we've got to find some food to give to the chicken. We've got to figure out how we're going to save the chicken. <laughs> that happened in one generation. Wow. You with me? Yeah. 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 Wow. One generation. Wow. Because we created an economy that many people, I'm taking to poor parish in Louisiana where people don't even have gardens and they don't have food security. because They don't have the food they need but they don't have a garden. Wow. When I grew up, I don't care what little village, wherever, people were renting houses. There were chickens in the yard. Chicken will raise, I'll give about one. Hen or raise, I think, will give you like 280 eggs a year yeah uh that one chicken so if you got six of them you got six people in the house you got eggs every day yeah or you can uh hatch some chicken i mean and then you've got a sustainable garden you know in the south you can have winter gardens up north you can have uh temporary nurseries to put raised plants in and i'm not telling everybody they got to go out and do that Right. But you ask the question, what happened? We became urbanized. You understand? Yeah. yeah. That if we want carrots, we go to the market and pick them up. You know. Yep. We eat lettuce, we go there, and you can't have the pigs and the chicken inside the the city limits. So it changed us. Yeah. You with me?
1: Yeah. No, it did. Culturally, and- we we
2: changed. We became independent on the supply chain. Is there an element of
0: complacency
2: in that? I think for good reason. I think we have lived lived well in that environment, you know what I mean? And lived pretty safely. When the government do their job to make sure our food's safe. On the other hand, we've seen people die because they got bad lettuce.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: You know what I mean? And then, then when that happens, and it's an exception rather than a rule, thank God, that something failed in the system. You know, you got the cows too close to the onion patch. You know what I mean? Or, or some crazy stuff like that where the food gets contaminated, gets shipped, and people get sick from it. Or the meat gets bacteria on it, and it, they ship it out, and people get sick from it. So there's a risk associated with the supply chain as we have it, but by and large, it works. Right. And through science, it works. Uh, and by and large, we don't have a, a major problem with that every day. Mm-hmm. But when that system works, it's nothing better in the world. I mean, when you got as many people living in square miles as we have them now in our, in our metropolitan area, that being said, it does leave us vulnerable to one of the most dangerous disasters of black swan that I see could happen if we lose power uh, in the Eastern part of the United States, and it could happen. When you lose power, electric power, uh, and you go, Two to three days without a metric power in a metropolitan, you already have a disaster. Yeah. Because things don't work. You can't get gas. Most of the hospitals don't have big enough generators. Uh the street lights stop working. People will take a day to get home if the lights went out in Atlanta. Think about when the lights went out in uh in New York between uh downtown, Central Park, all that area up toward the airport. Uh, people would get home to New Jersey
0: because
2: mm-hmm. it's all dependent on electricity. Yep. Then how would they get water and how are they going to get to the top of all these apartments? So I fear uh, as we deal with this pandemic and as bad as it is, uh, was one of the fears that one day we would have a pandemic, and now we got it, and we we're not handling it right. But one of the other things is that if someone to, was to do a cyber attack and take down our power grid, we're in a heap of trouble.
1: Which is not that far fetched, by the way. No, it, it could be done easily. It's a known threat. Yep, it certainly is. In in the in the few minutes that we have left, because I know you got to uh, get on with the rest of your day. Um, what has this pandemic exposed about us? I
2: think it, uh, every time we've been challenged globally or eternally, you know, we, we were able to use our overwhelming military power and presence to, to beat back the bully. And we fought two major wars on our shore, the revolutionary war and civil war. But every other big challenge we faced was overseas when we look at a national emergencies, if I may say. But we can go back a hundred years and we replay in the Spanish flu. Yep. We had a president in the Spanish flu who didn't want to talk about it. Matter of fact, they would find newspapers
1: if they wrote about the Spanish <laughs> flu. Did, I, did that that sounds familiar, doesn't it?
2: The president went to Europe and did negotiations, mm-hmm. and they think he might have been sick from the Spanish flu. Mm-hmm. We sent soldiers from Fort Riley, Fort Riley, Kansas, took them to the coast, put them on ships, and some of them died on the ships on the way to World War One from the
1: Spanish flu. From the Spanish flu.
2: So it's like a replay uh, from 100 years ago and there's a great book called The Great Influenza. If you hadn't read it, it'd be worth reading. And many of the lessons, people don't want to wear a mask, People want to continue to party. Many of the same things that we see happening today, happened hundred years ago in the Spanish flu. Yeah. 2018. So we know it can be done. Go look at South Korea. I spent four years in South Korea. Uh, it's a smaller country, obviously, and I must say every time I was in South Korea, the last time I was there for two years in two thousand, and one, and one that they, a lot of people wore masks. Why? Because they were worried about a large concentration of people in Seoul, like 8, 10 million people, 12 million people in the daytime, and they were worried about passing uh flu symptoms and colds to each other. So if you got on the, the subway, which I only did one time when we were there to go into a ball game, everybody had a mask on. You would go walk, we'd go every night and then I would go with our son to a shopping district. Everybody had a mask on. Yeah. So they were culturally uh, adapt to doing the mask thing. Yeah. They were very technical savvy And that they could trace people with their phones once they were tested. Yep, that's true. Back in February, I did an interview, one on Fox News, believe it or not. (laughs) And I said, this is going to be a problem. The problem is, is that culturally, the Americans, it will change our culture. Because the Americans won't, are not going to buy into this someone telling them what to do. And now we see the biggest spike we've ever had over the weekend of people getting infected. And there's a part of our government, let's go hell bent, let's move through it, don't worry about it. It's it's a sad commentary. For those large number of vulnerable people, which is the largest concentration has been around people of color and elderly people have been the biggest death toll. And we thought that would get people attention. It had not because we still hadn't ramped up uh, in the nursing homes and, and in the schools to have the PPE and we don't have the discipline to wear the mask because we made the mask a political Object as opposed to a public health object. You wear the mask because of public health. Protects you, it protects the other people. As opposed to, I got the freedom, I'll wear the damn mask if I want. And I don't want to wear the mask. We've become divided on that, but we have to find a way ahead. And and as I told people, we have been working on this for a few months with some people at Harvard University Public Health. And we just got to a place where we could not get anything done in Washington. So we've got a plan, and we'll see what happened on four November. Uh, one of them has a red cover on it, and one of them has a blue cover. Because regardless who wins, we got to do something. Yep. The yeah. shit they're doing now is not working. Yeah, and we got a plan. We know what to do.
1: Let Dave and I be the first to wish you good luck with that, because society needs it. All yep. of us need it. We need a damn plan, and we can't walk around with our head buried in the sand or ignoring. Past history, and yeah, I can talk to you about this subject alone for the next ten hours. But yeah, <laughs> I, 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 will, I, I will save you my anger and my angst because I'd probably get on a damn soapbox and never shut my mouth. Um, yeah, last question for you: What's next for you, General? Uh, you got any books coming out? What are you involved in? Any projects you want to you care to promote, or just uh, let us know what's going on with you? Well, I'm
2: 73, and I do a lot of volunteer work on the environment. And I do uh, speeches on leadership and resilience. And of course, that whole business has changed uh, because no conventions are happening. So I've been reduced to uh, refining the art of making a presentation on Zoom.
1: Welcome. And
2: and people are starting to adapt. We did get some speeches uh, booked that way, but it's certainly not, As stimulating as a speaker to be in front of 2,000 people as opposed to having 2,000 people tune in on Zoom. But it put a burden on you to get the message out and you got to get to talking in the machine. And how do you make that message? And remember, there is a clock running. You got to get through the message. You got to get to the Q&A. And how do you make that relevant? That people will pay you to do it.
1: Yeah, I, I'm still struggling business, with that.
2: But people, people uh, have learned to do business this way, and and I don't know uh, how many conventions in the future will be canceled because the next year when the company look at the bottom line, do we spend a half million dollars to go to Vegas? Yeah, or do we just do a Zoom meeting for a hundred thousand dollars? And send everybody a $200 gift card, you know?
0: Yeah. <laughs> and
2: you stay home. When it's good for the environment, it's good for we get the information out. Uh, and, of course, what's missing is that people-to-people networking that happens at these. And it's good for the town that you go to. Because there's a whole industry, of travel industry, that's been built around the convention business. Yep.
0: Yeah. And the airlines, so the airlines.
2: People are going to work that day. You know, you bring a thousand people to the convention center that there's going to be 2000 people working there to make sure they got food, water.
0: That's right.
2: You got hotel rooms. I mean, just put people to work, just make the economy run. I'd look forward to the in-person events again, but it's going to be a while before we do that.
1: Um, Well, I would like to thank you for doing this. I know your time is valuable. Um, and uh, we will reach out to you and your team. I'd really like to keep up with what you're doing and promote it when we get the opportunity. And hopefully, you and I will get to see each other on the public speaking trail once again be, uh, at some point in the near future. Um, well, it may, it may not be so damn near, but at least it'll be somewhere in the future.
2: All right, look, I'm on uh, Facebook and uh, Twitter. So, whenever y'all post your uh, podcast, if you would hit me up on Twitter at LTG Russell Honore. And on Facebook, Russell Honoré, two words. Got it.
0: Well, General Honoré, uh, I have to say this to you. The image on your website, you know, talking on that mobile device and wearing the sunglasses (laughs) (laughs) with with the cigar in your mouth reflects the image that I have of you. And you know know what that image is? Yeah, what's that? That image, you're tough, you're focused, and you're mission-driven. Thank you. Uh? most most certainly well it has been extremely helpful information that you've given us today and um i hope that people who are listening to our podcast feel more resilient as a result of some of your shared knowledge thanks david it's good to be with y'all
1: and travel safe Uh, thank you you do the same my friend
0: and to read more about, about Lieutenant General Honoré, please visit his website at generalhonoré.com. And don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Thanks for listening. And be sure to visit us at trickcast360.com to join the conversation and discover other fantastic episodes. Until next time, for Michael, this is Dave. Thanks for listening.